0: Welcome to New Books in Poetry. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. It's great to be back after a brief hiatus, especially when we get to burst through the door with a poet like Karina Borovich. She's the author of Proof, Cahoe Press, 2014, winner of the Cahoe Press Poetry Prize. Her debut collection, The Bees Are Waiting, Merrick Press, 2012, was selected by Franz Wright for the Merrick Press Poetry Prize and named a must-read by the Massachusetts Center for the Book. Her poems have appeared widely in journals and have been featured in Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, Ted Kuzer's American Life and Poetry Series, and on Garrison Keillor's The Writer's Almanac. She has published translations from the Russian and the French. Trained as a historian, Borovich also holds an MFA from the University of New Hampshire. She makes her home in the Connecticut River Valley of Western Massachusetts. Welcome, Karina. Thank you very much. So I'd like to get to know a little bit about you before we start talking about the new collection, if that's okay.
1: All right. Um, well, I don't know. Just to just to start at the beginning, I guess I'll talk about um, the fact that I grew up in Massachusetts uh, on the on the coast in New Bedford, Mass., which is a very interesting place. It was the um, of course, the whaling capital of the world back in the 19th century, and a very cosmopolitan place. So I think it influenced uh, my writing quite a bit. And as you could probably tell from, from my books, I'm very much interested in place and bringing a sense of place into my work, um, and it started at a young age, uh, just exploring the place that I was born and grew up, and continues to this day.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I did get that sense from uh, this collection, especially.
1: Um, so, do you have any siblings? Yep, yeah, I've got I've got an older sister. I'm the middle child, and I have a younger brother who's a painter, a visual artist, um, and my mom is a sculptor. She got her BFA in sculpture, so we kind of do the arts in my family to a certain extent. There's some singers and musicians. I- Mother's father was a physician. So we try to cover all the bases. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's great. I had always dreamed of, of growing up in an artistic household. That would have been nice. Um, so let's hear some of your work. If you don't mind, for our first poem, would you read Midnight Train on page 14?
1: Sure. Sure. Get to that one. <clears throat> Midnight Train. I don't recall ever asking for any of this, being born, having to live an upstanding American life, all of a sudden getting old, coming to fear the very oblivion they would have preferred in the first place. As a child, I was carried by a beast of sadness. At the least likely moments, I feel it bristle my skin. For instance, eating pizza at the mall, and the feeling would take my breath away my greasy fingers had become suddenly so small and strange. Gladys night in the pips lit the jukebox with midnight train, and I was dying of this painful humanness, yet dreading the white wine's of heaven.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I really liked that poem. It resonated with me. So the first Ten or so poems in the collection seem to focus their lens in on the hands, whether it be sewing, woodworking, painting, brushing a horse. They're also very grounded in the real until this poem, Midnight Train. Then we move into sensory as the speaker places him or herself in a new popular culture. Now, how did you decide on placement in the collection? Well,
1: you know, that's a really interesting question and one that I love talking about because... The placement, the ordering of the poems is not the original ordering. This was a, uh, this particular collection went through a lot of different orders, and it's a, a real interesting process. Uh, so my original ordering had more space between poems that shared similar themes or, uh, uh, you know, were childhood Poems or nostalgia poems. I wanted to widen the spaces between those. The editor at Cod Hill, Pauline Umanovich, though, reordered it in a way that that I saw all of a sudden it's opened the collection up. It's something that I hadn't seen before, being so close to the collection, mm-hmm. and I loved her reordering, and that was. That was how the present order came about, because it was Pauline's ordering, and we worked with that, and we tried to uh, spark poems off of each other and work with, the, with a much closer energy, poems together, speaking about themes um, and picking up on, on one thing and then another in closer proximity. And I really, really like how it, how it came out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the sense that I got from this too. That it felt very tight, almost like something slowly emerging um, or being whittled away at.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, yes. Yeah, and I like the I like the way you say that. And I think in my original ordering, it was much more uh, about echoing, and that was somehow not as not as satisfactory as the present one. Hmm.
0: So let's hear another poem. Um, would you read Sunbeam Bread on page twenty?
1: Sunbeam bread. And this is an, it's interesting. The poems that you've chosen. This is another childhood nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is that theme running through this book, sure. Sunbeam bread. How I hated those white gloves, which smelled of lavender sachet, whose seams bit my fingers. After mass, I'd hold out my hands, palms up, and beg my mother to pull them off. Sundays, too, we'd drive down to the bay and feed the ducks that week's leftover bread. It was one of my father's favorite things, to walk softly to the water's edge and toss handfuls onto the surface. Like toy sailboats, the ducks would glide leisurely over to claim the floating crusts. Once I ventured out onto the boulders and looked down and could see the ducks' yellow feet. Paddling frantically beneath the surface. Thank
0: you. Oh, You're welcome. So this poem, I, I hesitated. I, I put it in, I took it out, I put it in. Um, I said, I want to talk about this. I felt as though it was a departure from everything that I, that I was, um, I guess, putting together for this interview. Mm-hmm. But when you said that it, what, what, that it was like the, the first one that I asked you to, that it was that younger, what, what had you said? It was, it's childhood nostalgia, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, so there was a vulnerability and, and a sentimentality to it that that I connected to, um, but then the last stanza to me seemed almost menacing. Uh,
1: am I right in yeah. that? Absolutely, absolutely right, yep. So how did this poem come to be? Well, you know, it's one of those poems that sort of just... Comes into the world without a lot of forethought, without a lot of planning. You start writing, you fasten on a memory, and you you want to see where it takes you. And that's where it took me, strangely enough. It did, it it has this menacing undertone and this feeling of uh, being a child and Uh, feeling something always simmering under the surface and being able to see a little bit of what's going on under the surface. So it was, I don't know, call it the subconscious or or what you will, but uh, it sort of just wrote itself.
0: Yeah, wonderfully executed, for sure. Thank you. So the collection is in three parts, um, and within each part there seems to be a natural progression of awareness. Um, Did the poems form somewhat organically into these parts, or did you or the editor impose that form on them after the fact?
1: Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the order has changed. It had been changed several times. Um but I think I think what was going on was this is my writing over about uh three years or so and I don't I typically don't sit down uh with a project or have in mind to write a, a project book, if you will. But I think that there were themes I was revisiting despite myself, um, over those several years that that then will come out in the collection um, and will be emphasized, uh, certainly by the ordering. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think, I think that this was maybe a project book, despite the fact that I don't set out to write, to write a project, but the project being childhood nostalgia um, in, ma- in many ways. I think, I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm.
0: And even more than nostalgia, it's it's awareness. It is, um, you know, a, a coming to understanding the way that, that we progress from adolescence into adulthood and, and the types of, I guess, jarring moments that, that give us greater understanding.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the title, too, speaks to that. And it talks about proof, proof of our existence. Mm-hmm. Um, it also talks about uh, proof... In absence, some of the some of the poems in the collection are elegy poems. Family members who who are lost, friends um, who are departed. So this notion of proof and figuring out how we leave our mark um, and how others leave a mark on us and in our lives and in the places that we live is definitely, I think, the overarching theme of the book.
0: Yeah. Would you like to read that title poem for us on page 45?
1: Sure. Proof. The day they moved your belongings outside, it snowed. The flakes came to rest on your stained pillow. Huge clustered snowflakes flung to a pile of paper bats. The lamp, its pleated shade askew, wasn't made for that kind of weather. A life taken down, brick by brick. The past being carted away. Proof will never be back. Boxes and boxes, your feet so tiny, the shoes look like children's. They emptied dresser drawers into cartons and lined them up, open to the sky, a pair of spare eyeglasses upside down and cooling with melted snow. An address book sprawled open, names of the dead in your bold hand. A gold lipstick case tangle of lace curtains, antiqued by cigarettes. The neighbors thought, so that's how she lived.
0: Thank you. This one um, haunted me a little bit. What was this one of those instances where you uh, were revisiting moments despite yourself?
1: Um, yes, in a way. This one was written as an elegy for an aunt of mine who I became close with. Uh, later in her life, um, and I, I just felt, and I sort of watched her uh, becoming, becoming older, becoming more dependent, and that sort of the, the final, the final years, the final days when when a person is, is going away, is departing this life, and that, and that haunted me, like you said. To use those words, so I definitely wanted to write something about that. That's the poem that came. And it's focused very much on, on her things. Like some of the other poems in the book, um, I focused on how a person's presence and how a person's life maybe we can get the sense of it, or maybe not, from the things that they leave behind. So for me, this this poem is akin to to some of the other poems in the book that are based on uh, experiences and visits to authors' home museums, like the Emily Dickinson Home Museum in Amherst and the Marina Tsvitaeva Museum in Moscow, Russia. Uh, This this notion of looking at people's things and trying trying to conjure up their presence, even when they're gone.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I had also noticed um, that many of these poems, they they do take inventory in a way, um, kind of like this one does Um, Especially I think it was the third section felt very much to me like a museum Uh Uh Am I
1: wrong there? (laughs) No, you're absolutely right, absolutely right. And, and as I mentioned, this notion of going to museums, um, there are a few other poems in the in the book about museums. They're not authors' museums, but there are some authors for museums in it as well. this notion of just looking at these things and trying to trying to figure out the life that's behind these objects. and the, and the very strange notion too that objects often outlive uh, people, you know they, are, they have a longer life. Um, and we don't really think of that. We think of them as just things, just throw away. But they can exist for hundreds of years, whereas people, people don't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this actually helps me segue perfectly into what I wanted to discuss about your training as a historian. Um, could you read folk on page forty nine?
1: Sure. Folk. If you asked me to choose, I'd say the Azorians not the thin-lipped progeny of the Quaker captains of industry. That's the rock and the hard place I grew up against, the Sal Miguel fisher folk with their black rosaries and fodder, the Yankee owners of the Golderspoon pastures by the sea, salt marshes and haunted paddocks. Old man Slade would roam the fields with a darning needle in his pocket, jabbing Wren's eggs to save, he said, the Bluebirds. Wild lilies grew alongside tumble-down stone walls, for miles to the beach. But in town, almost every backyard was a shrine to Fatima. Three stone children and a lamb kneeling before Mary. Zinnias planted piously around. Geraniums. Red was the color. The Azorians were used to life on the volcano, the lush growth that comes from ash. What they didn't get was the Yankee penchant, the solitude, and disdain for music, which seemed more like a disdain for the depths of joy joy and sorrow. Living up against the sea like we did, how could you not want to describe it?
0: Thank you. Um, So how has your study of history informed your poetry?
1: Ah, wow. well... you know, ever since I was a child, I was fascinated with history. My father is a retired uh, history teacher and always had a love with history. We had many, many history books around the house, and I have to say those were some of my the earliest books that I read and some of the, my favorite books from as a child. So I think I, and also living in the place that I lived in, um, this very historical city, uh, and this is where Melville started right. <laughs> Moby Dick starts in New Bedford. I think that I was just imbued with the sense of history. Also, it's an, New Bedford is an immigrant city, and we were surrounded by people who were pining for the old country. and I was talking about the old country, and that includes my family as well. My family was very much the eastward oriented toward the old country. So this, I think this really just helped form my character and uh, instilled in me a, a great sense of history and a great love of history. Um, so it's nothing that I, that I overtly try to bring into my poems these days. Um, it's just something I think that's part of, part of my character, so I think it comes out in my poems. It's one of my interests, and I think, I think your interests tend to come out in your writing.
0: Mm-hmm. And that works perfectly for poetry, because I think poetry likes best when it can take a small event and give it context, whether it be historical or emotional or intellectual. So,
1: Definitely. And this notion of time, too, is something that I've always been fascinated by. Um, sort of, we're living simultaneously in the past and in the future and in the present. But it all just is collaged together in, in a single moment, and that's something that I that I am trying to get at in my poetry, to sort of uh, show the, the multifaceted way we inhabit time. Hmm. Would you mind expanding on that a little, if you don't mind? Um, yeah, uh, let's see. Well, it's, it's a little hard to talk about, because for me it just seems almost spiritual, in a way. Um, but me for instance I'll be you know walking down the street on a spring morning and I'm not only walking down the street on a spring morning right here and now but in my in my memory as well I'm remembering all the the sights and sounds of spring in my childhood and in my young adulthood and that's informing the present moment and enriching it um, so I think this notion of inhabiting multiple levels of time at the same time just lends a real richness to, to life and into writing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, those are the moments that I think create writers. Um, I know that Virginia Woolf when she was writing her memoir that she was reaching towards that fully present in the moment state of being and in order to do that you have to also be fully present in your own narrative. Um, it's something that, that I work hard on doing too, and it's comforting to know that there's another poet out there torturing herself. Mm.
1: <laughs> but it's just it is fascinating, and I like how you mentioned uh, being present in your own narrative, because because everyone's life is is a narrative. I mean, whether it's something that we superimpose on life, or whether it's a natural, organic thing, it is very it's very human to be drawn to narratives. And to, and to need narratives, and a narrative is, is something that unfolds within time. So again, it's for me, it's very much related to time.
0: Mm. I think we could probably talk about this for an hour just on Absolutely. The <laughs> um, so for the final reading, I was hoping that I might get you to read three poems in a row. To me, they are bonded almost as a triptych: uh, "Guest Room" on page 59, then "Sanctuary" and "Blake." <clears throat> We start with Guest
1: Room And again, this is one of those uh, childhood poems. Guest <laughs> The wasps go about their business in the far corner of the room. They're drawn, it seems, through no power of their own, into a tiny crevice where the ceiling and walls meet, dark bodies sucked into the arm that I can't cross, then one by one they're pushed out of that space, refreshed and eager to continue work for the world. Their segmented figures make my neck cripple with fear and need to hide, but I'm told, never mind, there's nothing from me they could possibly want. Okay, and next up we have Sanctuary. They hollowed out the window above of our door and caught me every morning. Dawn came and they had to shudder their wings wildly against the wall, especially having slept flattened into that small space. I felt clawed awake every day by something big and terrible, something intendingly hot. So Though I tucked handwritten coals of frost and blade beneath my pillow for sustenance and a little light, It was such a dark time, fighting and flying away, coming back loudly to roost. And finally, Blake. I go to Blake for solace, for a night out, for a vase of tiger moons. The moon was always beyond the trees. The trees were far away, purple shadows, with hooked claws thrown upon the moon. The moon was there for a reason that I couldn't manage to guess. Question, bound with white, sometimes with horns, looked down upon, watched with animal patience in a gentle face. One night, a voice came through the window. There were were always voices, this one more like a silver coin worn from, from someone's hand. Blake's in. But the coin wasn't an answer, and it couldn't purchase it. Thank you.
0: Um, I think that I am connecting most with these poems because, uh, you know, the the childhood and adolescence poems. It's because I see the speaker begin to bob above the surface a little. Um, she comes into he or she comes into focus, um, and I'm, I'm grabbing onto those as my anchors to to pull me through. The book. Um, could you tell me about these three pieces? Because I, I feel, as, I feel the kinship here.
1: Yeah, and, and you're, you're right. And they occur uh, close together in the book, one right after the other. So they are, they are sort of a triptych. Um, you know, guest room. Guest room to me is a lot like. Uh, the, one of the earlier poems I read, Sunbeam Bread. We see something occurring in the natural world. We see animals going about their daily business. And it, it feels removed from us in, in a certain way, but there's something going, be, going on behind the, under the surface that we feel we can't touch, we can't join. But it's a little, it's a little worrisome, a little sinister. And you definitely get that in guesswork. Now this, this one's based on a true experience. Uh, when I would stay in my grandmother's guest room, she lived out in the country. There was a wasp's nest in the guest room, and there were all these wasps coming in and out of this crevice, and it, it really freaked me out. But, but I was told, you know, just don't think about it, they're not going to bother you if they don't bother them, so I made my peace with it. Um, <laughs> So, but you know, there was something. There was something going on and my mind. Just fastened onto it. And many, many years later, it just it sort of came floating back to the surface. And I wrote about it. Um, and in the sanctuary in Blake, the same sort of I think the same sort of thing is going on. Too. There is something just below the surface uh, that that does feel a little sinister, a little worrisome, and in these two cases, again, it's a, it's a child who doesn't quite know what it's all about, who's discovering the world, um, and who feels possibly the presence of evil mm-hmm. um, under under the surface, under the placid surface of, of maybe the childhood neighborhood or the childhood home.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also got the feeling of um, a speaker trying to comfort themselves or seeking out comfort in some way.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think this too speaks to my love of history and and my attraction to history from an early age. I read a lot of the history books that my dad had at home, and he was very interested in European history, particularly uh, the history of World War II and, and the Soviet Union. So I would be looking at these books when I was really young, and uh, this notion of evil a uh, part in the world. I came to very early, um, and it sort of uh, shattered my innocence in a way. Yeah. So that I was grappling with these with these big questions of, of good and evil, you know? mm-hmm. and I think that this definitely comes out in these past. The child, of course, is, is observing the natural world in some of these homes, and still the, the wheels are turning about these larger questions um, mm-hmm. that maybe don't have anything to do with the natural world, that have to do with the world of humans. But the questions are just so large that mm-hmm. they're always
0: there. Yeah, well, the natural world is one of our first introductions to what we would perceive as cruelty. I mean,
1: yeah, and absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: um, I guess in some way prepares us for the more conscious cruelty that we witness from our fellow humans. Mm -hmm. If
1: we could ever be prepared for such a thing, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So who are you reading now? Oh gosh, let's see, I always try to, I'm always juggling a few poetry books. Right now I'm reading a new new book, it's just out, by a poet named Teddy Macker. Uh, The title of the book is This World. And he's he's a poet after my own heart. He writes uh, intense he he's intensely invested in place and in the natural world and uh, in the personal narrative and uh, the human life and human understanding over time as we you know as we change over time. So I'm enjoying it very much. Um, what else am I reading? I'm reading. Gosh, I'm reading food memoir too. I'm reading M.F.K. Fisher. She's a wonderful prose writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So her her prose is really, and this is this is a thing that I'm very interested in is voice. So her voice is very transparent. You know, the words the words don't get in the way because it, in many ways it bothers me when the when the words get between the reader and the writer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but here's an example of someone who the words just, they, they kind of dissipate on the page, and, and you're very close to meaning and feeling and emotion without, without the words getting in the way, so it's interesting to me to, to read Fisher and, and try to figure out what's going on and how she's able to accomplish that.
0: Hmm. So how do you take something like that with um, trying to not let the words get in the way of the, the writer and the reader? When you're working on translations,
1: ah, uh, well, transla- yeah, translation—it's all about the—it's all about the words <laughs> at, at that at that point in the process. But ultimately, you you have to you have to be striving for an end product where the words aren't uh, in the way. So it's a very it's it's a balancing act, and it's a difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of focus, a lot of attention, and a lot of patience. Uh, you may be working on a very short poem for months and months at a time, trying to get it just right, trying to get it uh, to read like a poem that had been written in English. Um, and it, So it can be very labor-intensive, but ultimately very, very satisfying. And I think, too, uh, doing, doing quite a bit of translation uh, years ago got me... Very interested in the craft of poetry, and taught me a lot of good, good lessons, very valuable lessons about how poems are put together. Uh, so it's something I would recommend for, for all poets who who have a second language or a third language, or or maybe don't. Maybe you can pick up another language with an eye, with a view towards translating. It's very valuable.
0: Yeah, I've always been a little jealous of people who are able to understand um, poetry in other languages, mm-hmm. especially when those languages have words and, and, you know, meanings or sayings that do not directly translate into English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you translate predominantly poetry?
1: Only poetry. Only poetry. Yeah, right. only poetry.
0: Excellent. Um, so what would you pursue if you couldn't write
1: poetry? Wow, that is you know what, that is a wonderful question because I think there's just so there's, there's so much out there. Um I I almost became a cook. I worked professionally in kitchens for many, many years, putting myself through college and beyond. Um I love food, I love cooking. Uh I love thinking about it. I love writing recipes. So I was squarely in the the world of food for a very long time. And I actually, I was at a crossroads at at one point in my life, in my late 20s. And I was thinking, okay, am I going to pursue writing and language uh, seriously, or more seriously, or am I going to pursue a, a career as a chef? And it was a tough decision, I have to say. But Ultimately, we can see how it ended up, but I still love, I still love food, and I still love. Food.
0: We are very glad that you chose poetry. <laughs> Thank
1: you. <laughs> so, what is your favorite dish to make? Oh my gosh! Well, I love making soup. I love making soup. I love making um, borscht, actually. Best of all, that's one of my favorite things to eat. Um, so. You know, there you go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So is there anything on the horizon? I know you said that this um, book took three years to write. Are you churning out another one? Are you writing?
1: I'm in the process of putting together another manuscript. Um, I'm at the very beginning stages of, you know, throwing all the poems from the past past couple years, about the past three years maybe, on the table, figuring out, you know, what can stay and what can go what needs more revision, what doesn't. So I'm at that, yeah, I'm at that point. And so hopefully maybe within the next couple of years, there'll be another book out there. Well, I
0: definitely look forward to it. Um, I want to thank you for spending this time with us and, and sharing your work. It
1: was a real pleasure. It was a great pleasure, Jen. Thank you very much.
0: This is Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry.